pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that while on one hand you are the God, Jesus is the Savior who commands us to to lay down our life, take up our cross and follow him, Lord, and we know that that's a high and holy and sometimes a very challenging call. At the same time, Father, your word makes it clear over and over again that you are also the God who gives your people rest. Father, in Jeremiah, you said of yourself, you said, I satisfy the weary ones and I refresh everyone who languishes. Father, that may not be all of us here this morning. We may not all be weary. We may not all be languishing. We may not all be at a place of, of great need and emptiness, Father, but I have a hunch that some of us are. And Father, we all know what that's like from time to time to, to feel like our spirit is dry, Father, that our hearts are, are empty or hard. And thank you, Lord, that far from saying, out of my presence, away from me, you say, no, no, come to me, you who are weary. Come to me, you who are burdened and weighed down with sin and guilt and heartache and, and, and trial and hardship. You say, come to me, you'll find rest for your souls. Father, we praise you, we savor and treasure that promise, that invitation this morning. Father, at the same time we do, we thank you that you are a strong God. You're a mighty God and a holy God and an awesome God and a powerful God. You say in your word, nothing is too difficult for you. With you, nothing is impossible whatsoever and you make no footnotes or exclusions or exemptions to that claim. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. And Father, all we can do is stand back and say glory to God in the highest. He is almighty and great and holy. Father, after all of eternity, as it continues to unfold, we'll never fully understand you. We'll never plumb the depths of who you are. But Father, we praise you this morning for the invitation to come anyway. To seek you, to seek your face, to seek, to hear the, the sound of your voice, of your spirit speaking in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, through the preaching of your word, through these songs that we've sung. Thank you for taking us to the cross already, reminding us why we're even here. That Jesus, though his heart was troubled, was willing to go. And Father, my prayer now is all these other things now complete, that you would be the one who speaks as we go to your word. Father, we go to your word because we need your word, because nothing else is like it. Father, because you have spoken to us and continue to speak to us through it. And Father, I believe, though I don't know what it is, I believe you have something particular in mind for each and every one of our hearts this morning. I don't know what it is, and Lord, it's not my business to find out. It's simply our business to seek you together and say, oh Lord God, speak. So as we go to your word, Father, we would ask, as we always ask, but we ask as intensely and earnestly as ever, that you, by your spirit, would come and guide us in truth. That you, through your spirit, would guard us from error and, and misunderstanding. That your powerful, personal, wonderful Holy Spirit would deliver our hearts from all that stuff that gets in the way. Father, even thoughts of the afternoon, the evening, the week ahead, they're already we want to scatter on our hearts this morning. Father, deal sweep it away so that for the next few minutes we might see Jesus. Lord, may we see him clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see him only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, let us leave rejoicing in just a little while because we got to sit at his feet. The feet of the one who, though his heart was troubled, went to the cross and laid down his life for us because of the joy set before him. And then he took it up again in victory and triumph and he offers that victory to us this morning. It is in the precious and powerful and wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. While you're doing that, we'll take a moment for Children's Church. If there are some boys and girls in the house who want to make their way out, our five-year-olds through our second graders.
You can head out for Children's Church. I want everybody else to grab your Bible and turn in it with me as we continue our study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, where this morning we're going to look at a few verses of God's Word and see what He has here in it for us. I trust you're ready and looking forward to that. Again, the theme of the series is readiness. Whether or not we are ready to serve the Lord, to listen to the Lord, to obey the Lord in, in all of our circumstances, and all of our situations. So find your way to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 and we'll look at it together in a moment. And, and while you're turning there, I want to I just do one thing. This doesn't have anything to do with the message, but it has everything to do with, in my mind, who we are as a church, uh, of course, now. And, and uh, we are on, uh, as you have noticed, although you 8 o'clockers, it's no different for you. We're on our summer schedule now and, and, and change of pace, and we're grateful for that. Love these beautiful, bright, sunny mornings here in church. You're all just, I can tell you're all just more awake than, than you are in December, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we do, we change things up a little bit in the summer. One of the things we change, of course, is we don't have Sunday school. But I wanted to take a minute, I was visiting about this a little bit with, with Maggie, our Sunday school director, um, you know, uh, there are some among us who have worked, they are welcoming this summer break because they've worked very, very hard in Sunday school over the past year. I'm here to tell you, it is not every church, I know this is true, it is not every church where men and women alike sign up for nine or more months of every week, every Sunday, preparing God's word for little ears and big ears and... and um, and that they do it so well. And we have a phenomenal Sunday school program here. And I'm not, that's not, hey, hey, let's hear it for Maranatha, let's hear it for Aaron. Let's, let's hear it for these teachers who have worked so very hard. So here's what I'm going to ask, and I know some of you don't like this, and other of you, others of you tolerate it. But if you taught Sunday school in any respect this year, you were a regular, you were a sub, kids, youth, adult Sunday school, teacher, stand up so that we can say thank you. All right, let's thank these folks for what they did. You have done well. You, are, uh, you have earned your break for the summer. We pray that you enjoy it and that it refreshes you and that you come back in the fall and do it again. How about that, right? But if you're interested, if you want to know more about Sunday school, you can talk to Maggie. She, I don't know where she went. She was up here singing a minute ago. Um, but there may even be some openings this fall, and she'd be happy. There she is back there. She'd be happy to talk to you about it. But thank you guys so much. I know that's just a momentary thing, but we love and I love what it is you're doing week in and week out. It gives my heart great joy, and I know it pleases the Lord. With that, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to read just, uh, just four verses here in a minute, but, but because we're sort of picking up here in the middle of a passage, we've done a couple of long segments in God's Word so far. This morning we're doing a shorter one, and we're, we're sort of picking the Apostle Paul up midstream, uh, mid-thought. So I want to just sort of take a couple of minutes before we read to sort of set before you what's going on here and, and what happened. And the way I want to do it is this. Uh, uh, some of you joined us this past Wednesday night for our monthly Fresh Encounter prayer gathering. We do that the first Wednesday of every month. And we just get together and we worship and pray together through God's Word. I know many others of you have participated other times. But this past week, I'm just going to say it was special. And if you missed it, you missed out. And, and that's because we did something a little bit different uh, this time around. This past Wednesday night, as we gathered at Fresh Encounter... We prayed together through the second and third chapters, a little bit of the first chapter as well, of the book of Revelation. And if you've never read the first couple of chapters of Revelation, what you need to know is that in chapters 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus Christ delivers seven messages, letters if you will, through the Apostle John to seven specific actual literal churches that existed in the first century, what we call the New Testament era. There were seven cities, uh, there were seven churches, and the Lord Jesus spoke to John in a vision. He said, I have a message for each one of these churches. And we just spent our time praying through those messages. 
And what we discovered, or what we were reminded of, is that in each of those messages, the Lord Jesus, to each of those churches, he, he highlighted some of their particular strengths and weaknesses. Some of the things they were doing well, some things that they were doing wrong and needed to change. And along the way, in each of those seven unique messages, he also gave each church, depending on where they were, what they were going through, how their walk uh, together with the Lord was going, he had words of encouragement, or conviction, or correction, or warning. So each letter, as we would assume from our Lord, who is a personal God, dealt with personal particular issues at each of those seven places. So what am I saying? I'm saying the seven letters were different. Except for this one thing. At the end of each of those seven letters, Jesus entered, ended all seven messages the very same way with the following words. He said this, and I want you to pay attention and remember what he said. He said, whoever has an ear, that would be, I think, all of us here this morning, let him hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. Whoever has an ear, let him or her hear. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And one of the many important things that that declaration, that exhortation expresses is this. Is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we worship a God who has spoken. Do you know that? We worship a God who has spoken. He has spoken to us in his word. Hebrews chapter 1 says he has spoken to us in his son. Go back to the book of Genesis chapter 1. You see that he is a personal God who created us with, for a personal relationship, conversation, interaction with him. He's a God who's spoken. And what we're going to see here in the scripture this morning, and again, this is where I'm going with this particular thought, what we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians this morning is that he is still a God who speaks to us today. He is still a God, our Heavenly Father is a God who speaks to us today. He does it through the person of his Holy Spirit, through the instrument together of, his, of the Bible, his Holy Word. And of course, for many of us, the most familiar context in which that happens, the most familiar context to us in which we perhaps have experienced that before, that we knew the Spirit of God was speaking to us, is in what we are doing at this very moment, through the act or the activity of preaching. That when God's word is being preached, God desires to speak to his people. The fact of the matter is this, and I will be the first to confess it. Not all preaching is good preaching, right? You've heard some good ones. You've heard some bad ones. I've given some good ones. I've given some bad ones. I understand how this works. Not all preaching is good preaching for all sorts of different reasons. I'm not going to take the time to spell out here. But, but the fact of the matter is this. Just because someone stands in front of a group of people, Bible in hand, words coming out of their mouth, is not a guarantee that God is speaking. That what we're about to hear is worth listening to. Reminds me of a story I once heard of a young preacher very, very early on in his ministry he was home one evening with his wife. They were just sitting around, weren't doing anything in particular. And, and, and suddenly he just out of nowhere, he looked up from his reading and he said to his wife, again, young guy, new to the ministry, he said, honey, said, how many truly great preachers do you think there are in the world today? And without looking up from what she was doing, what she was reading, she said, well, honey, I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty certain it's one less than you think. Not all preaching is good preaching, not all good preaching is worth, not all preaching is worth listening to. What am I saying? I'm saying just because, again, someone stands up with a Bible and words are coming out from their mouth and somebody's giving them a microphone is no guarantee that the living God is speaking. He desires to, but he may not be. Which I believe begs the following question, and here's where we're going in the scripture this morning. How do you know when it's the real thing? 
How do you know? How can you, I, anybody know that it is the real thing? How can we be sure that the Lord himself is present in and pleased with the preaching of his word? Well, that's very much what today's passage and today's message is all about. And believe me, I bring it to you with fear and trembling because it's an open invitation for you to examine me, which you should take, by the way. But how do we know when God's word is being preached from that God himself is in it, in spirit and in truth? Well, let's look at what Paul says, just four verses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and then talk about what he is driving at and what it means for us here today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. I'm going to read down just through verse 16, where this is what the scripture says. Paul says, for this reason, we should say, for what reason? Well, the reason is everything he's written before this, about his praise and his gratitude to God for the Thessalonians, for their progress in the faith, for the growth that they have experienced, for the good things God is doing among them. And he says, for this reason and many, many others, we, that is Paul and his partners Silas and Timothy, constantly thank God. Here it is. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, for, but, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews that would be their own countrymen, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God but hostile to all men and hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they, that is those who oppose the preaching of the gospel, always fill up the measure of their sins and wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now, admittedly, I'll say right up front, there's several different directions that we could go with this passage. There's a lot, as always, as I often say, going on here. But the particular thing I think we need to drive at today is what does this say about the preaching of God's word? What does it say about our attentiveness to it, whether we should be listening or whether we shouldn't, and, and what our part is in hearing and receiving it? And for that, matter, for that reason, there are several things I want you to see here in these four verses this morning, the first of which is this in verse 13. That in verse 13, look at it again in your Bible, the Apostle Paul makes a truly astonishing claim. In verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul makes a truly astonishing claim. Listen again to what he says. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, here it comes, but for what it really is, the word of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Think about what Paul's saying. He's saying, gang, when I preached... I came, I spent a few weeks, we talked about this the first week, maybe a couple of months with you at most. And what I did primarily when I was with you is I preached God's word. I preached to you the gospel. And when I preached, here's Paul's claim, here's what he's saying. When I preached, you sat there listening, and here's what you were saying. I know, here's what you were saying to yourselves. That's not Paul. We're not just hearing one man's considered opinion. We're not just hearing one man's insights and ideas. No, as, as you were preaching, or as I was preaching, you were saying to yourselves, we're hearing a message from the living, holy, gracious, glorious, wonderful, majestic, almighty God. Paul says, that was my conviction while I was preaching. And he says, and you, look at your Bible, look at verse 13, you accepted it. The word literally means you received it as a gift. 
You accepted it in the same way. Here's Paul's uh, astonishing claim. He says, here's what, we, here's what we're all agreed on, or here's what I'm saying to you. When I was preaching, God was, God was speaking. When I was preaching, the Lord himself was speaking. You experienced, as I preached God's word, Paul says, something deep down inside, something stirred within you, and it was not last night's tacos. It was more than that. It was something powerful, and it was something real. As another disciple once testified after hearing Jesus explain the scriptures, he says, our hearts, were they not burning within us? As he told us of himself from the word. And I would say to you, that's more than a bold claim. That's more than an amazing or an incredible claim, which are all terms I considered using before I settled on, it as, on astonishing. No, it's an astonishing claim. For any man, any mortal human being to make. One that by definition, it invites scrutiny, it invites question, it invites examination. Especially since, as I said already, we believe God still does that today. That there are times when his word is being preached, that God is speaking to the hearts of his people. We believe that through the means of human preaching, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and applies it to your heart and your heart and your heart and your heart in very personal and powerful and particular ways. It's never vague. It's never, ooh, I had a sense that, no, no, no. God is speaking. Comfort, conviction, healing, adoration, instruction, inspiration. Paul makes a bold and an astonishing claim. I was preaching, but God was speaking. And folks, he was speaking, Paul says, to you and to me. And then so what Paul does with that in mind in these remaining three, three and a half verses, is I believe he gives us four signs we can look for to know whether or not God's word is at work in the same way. In the rest of this passage, Paul gives us at least four signs of the same thing. So how can we know? Again, that's the question. How can we know that the sermon's worth listening to? How can we know that the preaching that we're hearing is actually something God wants to use to speak to my heart and to your heart? Four signs God's word is at work that we should be paying attention. Because how can you be sure? Just a gut feeling? Just a, a sense that maybe this is good, maybe it's not. They've got a Bible, they've got a microphone. Does that mean they have God's approval? To say to you what they are trying to say. Is it worth listening to? Paul gives us four signs, four markers that would say, yeah, in this message, God may well be speaking. The first one is this. I'm making it in four words, just four simple words to keep it nice and easy and memorable. Number one, the first sign that God's word is at work when his word is being preached is the sign or the mark of maturity. The sign or the mark of of maturity, that is to say, is anybody in the house becoming more like Jesus? Is anyone who's listening moving toward, maybe not just on one Sunday, but over a series of times together, a series of gatherings, are those who are sitting and listening, as well as the one who's standing up and preaching, becoming more like Jesus Christ? Because time and again, listen, from cover to cover, the Bible says it has that power. Did you know that? Over and over, in fact, we had it read for us earlier from Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, 11, God said this. He says, my word, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not come back to me empty. It will accomplish what I sent it out for. It will do what I intended. My word and my purposes in the preaching of my word, God says, never fail. Preacher might fail. He might foul up spectacularly. But God says, my purpose will not fail. You move forward in the scriptures to Romans 1, 16. Paul says the same thing about the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel, it is the 
power of God to salvation, just the message itself, to everyone who believes. 2 Timothy 3.16, some of you may have memorized this verse at one point in your journey with, with Christ, says all scripture, everybody say all scripture. All scripture is inspired by God, literally breathed from the mouth of God, and it's profitable, useful to teach and to reprove and correct and to train. And honestly, when you put, when you put that together along with many, many other uh, verses and passages like it, do you know what the Bible is telling us about, about itself? The Bible is telling us the word of God about itself is the single most powerful force on planet Earth. The single most powerful force. Bulldozers and bombs can change the landscape, but only the Bible can change a human heart. Only the Bible, the word of God, as it is spoken and as it is received, can change and transform a human heart. And here in verse 13, that's exactly what Paul says it does. When we are listening and responding to what it says. For this reason, look at your Bible again. Verse 13, we constantly thank God that when you, when you receive, received as a gift, accepted the word of God that you heard from us. That's preaching. You accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. Two technical terms about this verse, and then we'll move on. Believe. It doesn't just mean I hear it and agree with it. It means I hear it, agree with it, I'm going to do something about it. Belief leads to, true belief leads to action. True belief leads to transform, transformation. You who believe, well, you who believe in what you hear from God's word, what happens? Well, it says, Paul says, the word of God, it performs its work. That's a really cool word in Greek. It's energeo. It's where we get our word to energize. Paul's saying when you hear the word of God and it's being preached correctly and you receive and believe the word of God, you are internally, spiritually energized. Something happens. As the spirit of God applies the word of God, Sometimes, oftentimes, despite the preacher, not because of the preacher, but applies it to your heart, applies it to your life, and you begin to move toward maturity. That's why, listen, the most important question any one of us can ever ask at the end of any sermon, myself included, is this. It is not, did I like it? It is not, did I get something out of it? It's not, was he on his game today or wasn't he? It's not any of that at all. Now, the most important question any one of us can ask when we listen to the teaching of God's word is, did I hear something today that demands a response? Did I? And if so, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to answer? Did I hear something today that insists on a response? And if so, will I obey it? Because if so, movement toward maturity in Christ, it's inevitable when that happens. Small step of faith or a great one. But it's the first sign that God's word is at work. Are those who are listening, as well as the one who is speaking, moving toward maturity in Christ? There's a second thing, though. It's in verse 14. It's a second sign or mark that God's word is at work. Maturity is a huge one. We look at our own lives and say, am I growing? Am I responding? Am I getting things that make me and applying them more like Christ? The second term or the second mark is what I would call similarity. There's a sense of similarity at work as well. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. You know, like many of you, I've spent essentially my entire life in Iowa. With the exception of one year, I've lived in this state from the day I was born up until this one. But even so, I know almost nothing about farming. You know, we go around the rest of the country. People think we all know stuff about farming. I don't know anything about farming, except that I know this. 
I know that no farmer in this state or anywhere else goes out to his field in the spring and plants corn and comes back to it in the fall looking for beans, right? I do know that much, and I can take that anywhere. Nobody plants corn in the spring and comes back at harvest time and expects to find beans. If you plant corn seeds, you're going to get corn. It doesn't matter where you plant it. You plant it in Iowa or Oregon or South Carolina. The yield might vary, but the fruit or the crop is the same. Corn produces corn every single time. And I say that to you because the same principle applies to the preaching the authentic, the true preaching of God's word. And it's this, you'll know for sure it's the real, real thing when certain similarities emerge or apply wherever it's being preached and whoever it is doing the preaching. Look at what he says in verse 14. For you, brethren, verse 14, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. If you've read the New Testament, before we go any further in this verse, you've probably seen the term or heard the idea of imitators or imitation elsewhere in the scriptures. Paul says in another place, be an imitator of me as I am an imitator of Christ. There's another passage, I think it's in Hebrew, it says, be imitators of, of God. We are to, there's a, 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 an idea of imitation that sort of is a thread that runs through uh, the life of discipleship that's presented in the New Testament. But here's the thing, in all of those other places where imitation, this call to or this idea of imitation is found in the New Testament, it is almost always an active, everybody say active. It's an active thing, that means it's something I'm being called to do. Uh, uh, to live a holy life, to walk in purity, to repent of my sin, to obey Jesus Christ. It's almost always something you and I are being called to do. But here, imitators is different. The word is the same, but the way it's used, and we can't see this in English, so I'm going to go technical on you for about 15 seconds and tell you there's something more happening behind the scene. Because everywhere else, as far as I can tell, that imitators or imitation, that call is in the New Testament, it's an active thing. Here it is written in what's called in Greek the passive voice. You know what that means? It means it's not something that you do. It's not something that I do. It's something that's done to us. It's I'm just going about my business, but something is happening to me. Something is happening around me. God, perhaps, is doing something in me. It's not that I'm ignorant or, or unaware. It's just that I didn't have anything. It's just happening as I go about my business in the daily Christian life. And here's what Paul says. You need to know that as we look at this verse again. You, brethren, became imitators. Something began to happen to you that has happened to the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. A long way away, someplace most of you have never been. Something happened to you. Imitation, something happened to you. The same thing that happened to them. And we say, well, what happened? What's he talking about? Look at the rest of the verse. Here's the way you became imitators. You endured the same suffering the hands of your own countrymen, even as they endured the same thing. Paul says one of the signs we know what happened among you is real. That you heard the word of God and you listened to the word of God and you answered to the word of God and you're obeying the word of God preached to you as you became imitators in this, in this sense. Listen, that those nearest to you, your family, friends, neighbors, those who know you best, those nearest to you in your life reacted to your newfound faith the same way they did back in Jerusalem. The people who knew those new believers best with opposition. 
Your newfound faith in Christ brought you. Didn't, you didn't go looking for it. You didn't go do something. You just started living. You believed in Jesus, started living for him. The people who knew you best began to oppose you. Paul says, hey, nothing new under the sun. That's exactly what happened with the, the original church back in Jerusalem. And while we'll get to the nature of that opposition and the depth of it in just a moment, the, the point right here, the principle is this. Corn produces corn. The gospel prompts when it's truly the gospel and when people are truly, truly believing. Some are going to come running and, the, and, oh, sinner, come kneel. You know, earth has no sorrow, heaven can't heal. And it's a good thing. But there's going to be some people who don't. There's going to be some people who don't. We're going to oppose it and despise it. What am I saying? I'm saying true preaching of God's word and hearing and obedience to it, it gets a similar reaction wherever it goes. There's a lesson in that. You know what? There is. There's a lesson in that for us. As I thought about it, there's a lesson in it for me anyway. Maybe it's for you as well. And it's this, that those new believers' response to the gospel in both places, Judea, Jerusalem, what we call Israel, here in Thessalonica, hundreds or thousand miles away, their response to the gospel and their obedience to it was so clear that other people actually noticed it. How about that? They became believers in Jesus and they didn't fly under the radar Let's not make waves. Let's keep it kind of on the down low. It didn't happen that way. No, their faith in Christ and their obedience to Christ was so clear that people took notice. And the changes in their lives were not difficult to see. So how do we know God's word is at work? Well, number one, maturity. The believers are, are moving forward. Those who believe it and hear it and respond to it are moving forward. The second sign is this mark of similarity. The gospel does, you, you put it down anywhere. Put it in Africa, put it in America, put it in Antarctica. It does the same thing. Wherever it goes, some will come running and some will stand against it. It's just a fact. It's what the gospel does. And it goes straight into the third sign. Really, what Paul's primary theme is in this passage, he's trying to encourage these new, these young believers in talking to them about a third mark, that the gospel is at work, that God's word is being preached, and it's this. You've got the sign of maturity, you've got the sign of similarity, you've got the sign, verse 15, of hostility. Hostility. Pretty good sign, along with the others, that the word, the true living word of God is at work. Look at verses 14 and 15. Again, just 14 for the sake of context. For you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. For you endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Like produces like, corn produces corn, the gospel produces opposition. What kind of opposition was it, though? Well, here's what happened elsewhere, verse 15. Those who opposed the gospel back in Jerusalem and Judea, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets before them. They drove us out. And just so you know, they're not pleasing to God. But they are hostile to all men. As the young Thessalonian Christians encountered opposition to their faith, and they did, Paul wrote what he wrote here, basically to assure them of one thing. He said, he was saying, gang, what you're experiencing is, everybody say normal. Normal. It is not an exception. It's the rule. 
Now, praise God is not the only rule. It's not the, it's not the exclusive rule. But he was saying it is normal. Now, that didn't make it any easier. Nobody likes to be opposed for their faith. Nobody likes to experience hostility simply because they love Jesus Christ. But I think it, at the very least, it would have helped to make more sense as they're looking, what's going on around here? Why is this happening to us? Why are people so angry at us all the time? Why are they running Paul out of town? Paul's saying, hey, gang, I know you don't like it. Just so you know, that's the way it goes. <laughs> when you follow Jesus Christ, it is going to happen. He says, listen, just look at verse 15. It's how it was for Jesus. And oh, by the way, they killed him. Paul says, it's how it was for me and my gang, Silas and Timothy. You recall Philippi, right before we came to town, in jail, beaten in public, in the stocks. Remember how we had to flee your own town as well and leave you behind? That's why we're writing to you now. They did it to Jesus. They did it to us. They did it to those first Jewish converts in Jerusalem. And frankly, if Paul could have looked into the future, he could have shown them much more of the same to follow. You've probably heard it said that in the 20th century alone, more true believers in Jesus Christ died for their faith than in the first 19 centuries combined. That's hostility. Seems to me the 21st century is off to the same start. Wherever the gospel is and people are living for Christ, for whatever reason it brings opposition, we are seeing more of it ourselves today. Simply put, hostility toward Christians is usually a sign that God's word is at work. Now sometimes there's hostility because Christians behave foolishly and they say foolish things and unbiblical things, and, and that's deserved. I mean, we should expect it if we're going to mess with and malign God's word. But sometimes just the true, simple preaching and obedience to God's word and the gospel, it brings us hostility. And that's what Paul is saying, gang, it's normal. You know, but be that as it may, and, and I don't know if, if you've done this as well, I've spent a lot of time, and I mean a lot of time, pondering the question of why. You ever thought about that? Why is that the case? I mean, really, and I say this in all sincerity, what on earth is so horrifically offensive about the message that there is a loving God in heaven who created us for himself, and though we rebelled against him and we screwed everything up, he gave us his one and only son, who lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death, who paid the price for our sin, so he could say, come to me, all you who are weary. Let's have a relationship and live for me. That's a problem? I mean, seriously, what is so offensive about that message? And I've really struggled with that. I just, I don't get it. I know there's, this, there's, the, there's the unseen element. There's Satan and his opposition and his desire to thwart anything Christ does, particularly the preaching of the gospel. But you know, as I've thought about it more, and I've tried to search the matter out, I think that this is the deal, or at least part of the deal, that this message, which is in fact so beautiful to us, amen, we love the gospel, Such, we know it's good news, the reason that this message that is so beautiful to us stirs such hostility in others, hostility that in keeping with our theme we must be ready for, is among other things this. It is also at the same time a message that there's a God and it's not you. That he's in charge and you don't get a vote. People don't like to hear that. That, that your, your very best efforts at self-improvement do not impress him. Your greatest worldly achievements mean nothing in his sight. And that the only way to salvation, the only way to escape the sin and the problems and everything that plagues us is not the path of pride, it's the path of humility that says, you know what, I'm the problem. How many of us like to stand up and say that I'm the problem? It is me, it's not my parents, it's not my siblings, it's not my school teachers, it's not my rotten boss, it's me. And it's inside. That's an offensive message. 
you don't get a vote and you're the problem. Woohoo! <laughs> you know, what do we expect? <laughs> if that's what the message contains. And, and when it's preached, whether from the pulpit or, or, or over breakfast, some people are going to find it irresistible and some are going to find it intolerable. And when both things are happening at the same time, pretty sure shine it's the gospel. Pretty sure sign that God's word is at work. Because what it is definitely doing in each and every case, it is getting a response from human hearts. This is the sign of maturity, the, the mark of similarity, the presence of hostility. And then the fourth and final one in verse 16 is, is what I would label the, the mark or the sign of, of inevitability. And I know that's kind of weird and vague, so let me explain what I mean. A mark of inevitability. There's something about it that is inevitable. Because the last thing Paul says here in verses 15 and 16 is this. He says, those who killed the Lord Jesus, those who drove us out, those who oppose you, who are hostile to toward you, here's what he says at the end of verse 15. They are not pleasing to God. They are hostile to all men, and they are hindering us. In their hostility, they are hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result... Now, they think they're stopping the progress of the gospel, but here's what's really happening in heaven and behind the scenes. The result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But, or, and, wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now, the four marks here, this is the hardest one to measure. It's the hardest one, I think, to define in some ways, but it's also the right place to land. It's also the right place for us to bring all of this together, because here's the point Paul's trying to make. Hear this, remember it, write it down, maybe celebrate it in the right kind of way. No one opposes God and gets away with it. It's true. No one opposes God and gets away with it. Maybe for a little while, maybe for what seems to us a long while. But no one opposes the Lord and gets away with it. Hostility may rise, persecution may fall, but God always gets the last word. And just because he hasn't given the last word yet doesn't mean he's not going to. What does Paul say? He writes, if you look at, look at your Bible at the end of verse 16, he writes about it as if it's already an accomplished fact. But wrath has come, not will, has come upon them to the utmost. There's a little, there's a little grammar lesson in that as well. Uh, the, the, the way Paul writes that in the original language, he's saying it's already an accomplished fact in the past. We're just waiting for it to happen. God's already said it. It's a past action with ongoing results. John Stott says in, in easier language to grasp, he says that what Paul's saying here is God's wrath hangs right over their head and it's just about to fall. And we shouldn't celebrate God's wrath being poured out on anyone because God desires all men to be saved, so should we. But he's saying those who don't and those who are hostile and those who oppose and those who resist and those who hinder are not getting away with it. Now some preachers, I will admit, acknowledge there are some preachers of God's word who are guilty of almost exclusively preaching that message, the message of wrath. And it's not pretty and it's not pleasant and, and frankly they're guilty of preaching it almost exclusively to God's people, which makes no sense whatsoever, right? Because what did we talk about last week? Our identity in Christ. We're new creations in Christ. We're not under his wrath or under his condemnation. But it happens, and it happens a lot, unfortunately. But that's not what Paul is driving at here. No, his message, what he's driving at is this. He is saying this, that when the word of God is preached, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the obedient Christian life, all of this package that comes to us in the scriptures, he's saying when it is preached and when God is behind it, there will be, by definition, an inevitable, there's our words, an inevitable edge of judgment to it. There will 
I know the world doesn't want us to judge. And most Christians don't want us to judge. God says, that's all right, I'll judge. And every time my word is preached, there is an inevitable edge, a prophetic edge of judgment to it. Because here's the thing, every time God's word is preached, whether it's preached well or the preacher falls flat on his face, every time God's word is preached and it's from the scripture and the spirit is behind it, it's an hour of decision every time. Every time. It's an hour of decision. Where before going home, all of us, preacher included, should know we've been given a choice. Do I believe or disbelieve what I've just heard? Will I obey or disobey what God has just said? Will I repent of my sin if I have not done so yet? Or will I refuse and continue to live as king of my life? What am I going to do with what I've heard? And that last one, repentance or refusal, is is what Paul especially has in view. He says unbelievers have to make, and, and if you're an unbeliever, you have a choice to make. Because the wrath of God against unrepentant sin, it hangs right above our heads, right above, and at any time, you can decide enough. That's not a pretty message. I don't like preaching that. I'm just telling you that's what the word of God says. There's a choice. It shows judgment is inevitable. And our only hope, our only escape is personal surrender to Jesus Christ. Once again, the message is this, what Paul's saying. When all four of those things are present and in operation, pretty good sign God's word is at work. Pretty good sign what we're hearing is the real thing. Whether it's delivered well or delivered poorly, whether it's delivered in a winsome way or it's just get the message across. God's word is at work. That's that, but you felt it, so have I. Man, there's something going on here. It's not the preacher. And it's not his funny little jokes or his little outline or his big idea. But as he's speaking and preaching, God is talking to me. That's a sign God's word is at work. That's the sign that the the gospel is on the move. And when that happens, we must listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches, to those in them, to every heart in the house. And so the big idea of the message this morning is this. Pay, and this is going to sound really self-serving coming from a preacher, but listen, I'm saying it to us, not to me. Pay attention preaching of God's word. Pay attention. Pay close attention to the preaching of God. Not to the preacher and his outline and his big idea. But to what the spirit of God is saying through the word of God to the people of God as they've gathered in his name. There's a God in heaven and he loves you very, very much. He loves you enough to tell you the truth, to invite you to the truth, to call you to obey the truth. Preaching's just the mechanism. God is the one who is in it. When he speaks to your heart, when he says, that's the thing, pay attention and obey what he says. Father, I confess this morning, this is a hard one to preach. Because it could be perceived as such an advertisement for church and for preaching, and that's not at all what we desire, what I desire it to be. Father, I, as much as any one of my brothers and sisters here today, need to hear and to know what your spirit is saying to the churches. Father, we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We don't want the opinions of a man. We can get that anywhere. We want to know what you have to say to us as we open your word and open our hearts and your spirit begins to move. Lord, what you have to say to each one of us may be very, very different from one person in the pew to the next. But that should only make us love you and trust you and adore you even more.
you could say one thing to me and another to the person to my left and something else to the person to my right. And Father, that all of it is true and good and designed to conform us to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh God, take the things of truth today and seal them to our hearts. Take the things of the flesh and just let them be forgotten so that we truly do today leave seeing and savoring only Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.